All right. That, um, you know, there's, I don't tell very many jokes, so I'm going to tell you a joke this morning, okay? And um, so I, I want you to be prepared. So it is a joke, so if you want to laugh, you can laugh, okay? Um, you know, when you have to tell somebody it's a joke, it's probably not, you know. The politician, he woke up and, and uh, he had been in, in an, after an operation and they found, uh, he found that the curtains in his room were closed and he couldn't figure out why they were closed. And so he asked the nurse, he, he said, is it nighttime already? And she said, no, sir, it's not. She said, uh, but I want you to know something. There was a fire that is burning across the street in a building and um, we didn't want you to wake up and think that the operation was unsuccessful. You know, this morning, this morning, our Lord gives us a glimpse of a veil behind, uh, beyond the veil of death. And I just want to share this with you. Um, we're going to be talking about money today. It always helps when you talk about money and you have a good laugh, you know, at the beginning. Um, but a global study reveals an overwhelming wealth gap. Okay? The three richest people in the world, Jeff Bezos... Uh, $112 billion, Bill Gates, $90 billion, Warren Buffett, $84 billion. They have more money than the poorest 48 nations of the world. The richest 2% of the world's population owns more than half of the world's household wealth. If you have just $61,000 in assets... You are among the top 10% of the richest people in the world. Half of the world, nearly three and three quarters billion people live on less than $2 a day. The world's total wealth is valued at $125 trillion dollars. And although North America has only 6% of the world's adult population, it accounts for 34% of household wealth. 6% of the world's population, 34% of the world's household wealth. Folks, we are abundantly rich. We don't know how rich we are. You know, and it, it's amazing when you think about that and, and just how, how rich we are. You know, Jesus, in his teachings, he gave us just shy of 40 parables as he was teaching and walking the earth, teaching his disciples, teaching the people. And, and they are included in the gospel record. And, and one out of three, nearly a third of those parables deal with money in some way. That's not surprising. That money should have a dominant role in the teaching of Jesus since it has such a dominant role in each one of our lives. We recognize that. I hope we do. I mean, we spend, according to statistics, we spend more of our waking time thinking about money than not thinking about money. And I think that's huge because we think about how to acquire it. How are we going to acquire some money to pay for our needs? How are we going to acquire more of it? 
How are we going to spend it? How are we going to save it? How are we going to invest it? How are we going to borrow it? How are we going to count it? How are we going to give it away? How are we going to get a loan for it? See, money, possessions, and wealth are so much a part of our world's existence that they actually dominate, define, and determine an inordinate and consuming amount of our time. Probably a close second is what we're going to eat next. Because we think about money and we think about food, and that is most of what we think about all the time. And, and it's no, no wonder that Jesus talks about it in, in a full third of his parables. I mean, if you were to be, let's say, 85 years old, statistics say that you would have spent nearly 50 years of your waking time thinking about money. That's a lot of time. Sadly, with all this thinking about money, it doesn't help us much. Since we can be so foolish when it comes to money. And so our Lord, he redirects our attitude about money in our parable today. We're preaching through some of the minor parables. These are the parables that really don't get a whole lot of attention. Um, we're, we know the famous parables that everybody preaches about. But these are, these are tucked in here. And I just want to look in, in Luke chapter 16. Um, and in Luke chapter 16, there's, if you have your Bible and want to turn there, this would be a good time to do that. I'm going to read in just a moment. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells two parables. Two parables, one about the unrighteous uh, steward, and then the other parable is about the rich man and Lazarus. And he teaches these to show that God's perspective on riches and our perspective are often completely opposite of each other. What God thinks about money and what we think about money are opposite. I want to say they're diametrically opposed. I think that's huge. Because if we truly desire to be rich, we need God's perspective on money. We need to know what he thinks about it. See, the entire chapter should make us stop and carefully consider our attitude toward money. See, God's ways are always higher than our ways. He knows more than we do, especially with regard to money. Since we're all prone to follow the world's ways, we have the world all around us and we're prone to follow the, the direction that the world goes. We need to think carefully about what Jesus is saying so that we can follow God's way to true riches rather than the world's way through its deception and through the wealth and ultimately to eternal poverty. Folks, we got to get this right. We need to understand this. This story of, of the un, unrighteous steward, I like to call him the, the shrewd steward, the shrewd servant, who tried to feather his own nest, if you will. You know what I'm talking about. With his master's money has been called the most puzzling parable that Jesus ever spoke. It's hard when we read it and, and, and to ferret out the truth of it is to discover one of the real Gems, one of the precious stones of Jesus' teachings. See, Jesus shifts 
to his disciples while clearly the Pharisees are listening in. Okay, the Pharisees are there in proximity and, and, and they're wondering what he's teaching about. And he turns and he begins to, to disciple, if you will, his disciples. He's speaking truth into their lives. Now, this is a discipleship lesson on how they are to live their lives. And I think we can benefit from it. Look in Luke 16, verses 1 through 9, and read it with me if you would. Luke 16, 1 through 9. It says, Now he was also saying to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. And then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Verse 9. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Loving Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how it challenges us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just blanket this place, that you would speak to each one of our hearts, that you would reveal yourself to us. Father, that through this word, Father, that you would show us an appropriate way to to manage and to handle and a perspective and an attitude toward money. And Father, that you would be glorified in this. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would have your way in each of our hearts. I pray for a great repentance to fall upon your people. And Lord, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, as Jesus unfurled this story of the unsavory character, his disciples, they expected Jesus to pronounce condemnation from God on this unrighteous steward. Imagine their surprise when instead the master in the story praised the unrighteous steward. I mean, they were thinking God was going to, that Jesus might call down fire from heaven and zap this person. You know, I could just see him and we would be the same way. Lord, what are you going to do to this guy? Man, he's ripping you off. He's doing something bad. Man, are you just going to zap him with lightning or is he going to fall into a pit? Is he going to hit by a bus? What's going to happen to this guy? 
And Jesus, the, as he tells the story, the, the master in the story actually praises the servant. See, this guy was a steward. He was a manager. Someone that was in charge, like this, a, a, a oikonomon. He would be a free man, okay? A, a, not a slave, not, he's a servant, but he's, he's a free man, and he's someone that is in charge. He has high social status. He's someone who has high responsibility, He would be trusted because he would have the right to act on behalf of the master. This man had the ability to do that. So you you think about he's acting on behalf of the the master's full agricultural um, business. Okay, He's in charge of the land. He's in charge of the crops. He's in charge of the workers. He's in charge of everything that the master has put in his hands. And he has the ability to make decisions on the master's behalf. Think about it in these terms. This manager was kind of like... Joseph was to Pharaoh. It says in the Old Testament that Joseph, that that Pharaoh didn't concern himself with anything except what he was going to eat because he put Joseph in charge of his house. That's what Jesus is talking about. This man is in charge of his master's house. (laughs) One of the main problems for interpreters of this passage is seeing Jesus as he seemingly praises the unrighteous manager. But the, the text does not say that he praised his dishonesty, but because he had acted shrewdly. Furthermore, it's not Jesus who is praising the unrighteous manager, but it's the manager, the, man, the, the manager's master who does that. Now, there's no question that this man is unrighteous. He's unrighteous. He is evil. He is wicked. He's conniving. He starts as being out as being irresponsible and he becomes an embezzler. Okay? He's, he's taken his master's debts and asking the people to pay for them. And he's, he's saying, let me give you a break. You pay me instead. And I'm only going to take, you know, $80 out of the hundred. I'm only going to take 50 out of the hundred. But he's, he's feathering his nest with that. He's unrighteous. You know, some people have worked really hard to try and protect Jesus from using a bad man to make a good point. And they've tried to read into this story something in between the cracks that maybe the guy had some redeeming quality or, or this or that and, and, and there's none to be found. You can't do it. Because there's no way around the fact that he's called the unrighteous steward. And by that... There's no hidden details. Folks, this is fiction. This is a story that Jesus made up to illustrate his point. There are no other details. There are no hidden details. Um, you know, there, there's nothing more to this story. No secret exclamation. No secret explanation. No hidden details. It is what it is. Because Jesus told it that way. We can't uncomplicate it and we can't complicate it. But this order, look at the order that he receives uh, from his boss in verse 2. It says, and he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. <laughs> it's like today if a, if a company um, that would give bad employees like a two-week notice... <laughs> 
I mean, who does that? You know, you find out somebody's stealing from you, you you're done. You know, it's kind of like Donald Trump used to say, you're fired, you know. Have no problem saying this, you're fired. You know, that kind of thing. But we, we see this, that in fact the master should have fired him on the spot at that very moment and not give him more time to mismanage the master's resources. And so then the, the, the manager says to himself, he's speaking to himself, and it, it kind of reminds us of, of someone else of bad character. And in Luke 18, if, if you flip the page, it, it talks about um, the, uh, the fellow, that, uh, the unrighteous judge, who said to himself, even though I do not fear God or respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. He doesn't want to hear the, the, the nagging widow, and so he grants her request. This fella, he speaks to himself, and he realizes, hey, pretty soon I'm going to be on the street. I'm going to be out of a job. I'm not going to have any money. I'm not going to have any place to live. So he, he's telling himself this, that he's realizing what's about to, to happen. And then in verse 3, look at verse 3. The manager uh, said to himself, what shall I do? And then um, when he's taking the management away from me, he says, I am not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. In verse 3, he crosses off two options. Two of his options. I mean, he's become used to a certain level of living. He likes his level of living and he seeks to preserve it as best he can. You know, in today's lingo and modern vernacular, one might say, this guy is a white-collar worker. He's a manager. He's used to having some perks along the way. So this is more likely a case of disinclination than it is of disability, as manual labor is beneath his dignity. I'm not strong enough to dig... Matthew Henry put it this way. He says, it does not appear that he is either lame or old, but the truth is he's lazy. His cannot is a will not. It is not a natural but a moral disability that he labors under. He says, I, I, I'm, too, I'm not strong enough to dig, so he doesn't want to do manual labor. But then he says, I'm ashamed to beg. I mean, this step is even below that of manual labor, but ultimately it reeks of pride. He doesn't want any part of that. I can imagine the, the Pharisees who are listening in, they're probably saying, amen to that, brother. Amen. We don't want to beg. We just want everything handed to us. We don't want to work for it. And then verse 4, he says, I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. He suddenly has a, you know, a flash of inspiration, a eureka moment, a moment where all of a sudden it comes to him, you know, a, an epiphany. And the solution that he came up with would provide all the things that he would need, a place to live, some income, you know, uh, uh, status. And the lesson that I want to imp uh, suggest to you and really implant in your mind is this. Is that the lesson for us is that a faithful steward will use his master's money shrewdly to provide riches 
for eternity. The word shrewdly kind of has a negative connotation. But in just a moment, I'm going to tell you what it means. Jesus is telling us that there is a way that you can take it with you. I've heard that all my life. You can't take it with you. There's no U-Hauls pulled behind the, 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 the hearse, you know. You can't take it with you. But Jesus has given us a way that you can take it with you. Namely, by wisely investing the resources God has entrusted to us. To invest those now in things that matter for eternity. I mean, Jesus' conclusion in the last half of verse 8 indicated that there are three qualities here in the sons of this world that he wanted to see in the sons of God. Okay? Three qualities. The first one is fervor. When Jesus said in verse 8, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light, he had in mind fervor. They're more shrewd. They're, they're, they're more passionate. Let me use this word. They're more committed. A word we don't like to hear in relation to our spiritual journey, especially in connection with church, because we're committed to everything else but God's kingdom. We're committed to the bank. We're committed to the credit union. We're committed to the savings and loan. We're committed in all kinds of ways. But we're not committed to his body and to his church. I know this hurts. It's convicting. It's convicting for me as well. Fervor. I mean, think about it. To succeed in life, a businessman approaches his job with enthusiasm and commitment so that there is no challenge too difficult and there's no sacrifice that costs too much for him to build his business. We've, we've heard people doing without in order to build their business. We've heard of rags to riches where they started on a shoestring and, and, and built this, this huge company worth billions of dollars. And the reason is, is because they're willing to sacrifice for it. They're willing to work hard and commit themselves and sacrifice for that. It should be no different in the kingdom of God. We have to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. See, we should be just as committed in extending the kingdom of God as we are in experiencing success in this world. See, when it comes to that, we use all of our faculties. We use all of our resources. We use all of our, our mental capacities, our intellect, all of the things that we can to make sure that we are successful and that we have what we need in this life. Why wouldn't we do that for the life that is to come that is eternal? I'm going to start preaching. He's talking about fervor. He's talking about passion. He's talking about commitment. He's also talking about foresight. You know, in, in, in verse 8, it's translated the word shrewd. And it comes from the root word friend, which is P-H-R-E-N. Which means the mind. It means the discerning intellect. 
And what Jesus is saying is he's saying the sons of this world show more foresight in pursuing their worldly goals than Christians do in pursuit of spiritual goals. I mean, the word shrewd means intellect. It means discerning. It means knowing. So he acted intelligently. He acted discerningly. He acted knowingly, knowing what was coming. And Jesus said, man, I wish the, the sons of light would act in the same way towards the kingdom of God. I mean, when the servant in the parable faced a crisis, he reacted in an intelligent way. When was the last time you sat down and thought about your spiritual development and your spiritual journey? When was the last time you, you, you intelligently sat down and plotted a course for your spiritual growth, for your spiritual future, like you would for your financial future? See, this servant, even though he was unrighteous, he had foresight in that. He analyzed his situation. He considered his options. He determined his best course, and then he followed it. See, Jesus said that we need people to face the challenges of the spiritual realm in that same kind of imagination. When was the last time you dreamed about what God had in store for this church? When was the last time you thought intelligently about God's vision for what he has for you and what he has for this body and what he has for his church, not only in America, but around the world? Most of us, we're looking at our money and we're looking at our food and that's all we ever see. I remind you of the sons of Issachar. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 32. Issachar was one of the 12 tribes of, of Israel. The sons of Issachar, well, that was the descendants of Issachar. But what it says in that verse, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, is that these, these sons of Issachar were men who understood the times... With knowledge and knew what Israel should do. We need the people of Issachar. We, we wring our hands, we wonder why our nation is in such problems, and it's because the people of Issachar within the body of Christ do not know what our nation should do. They don't understand the times. They're acting like, oh, there's nothing we can do about it, Brother Ridge. It's just happening to us. No, we led ourselves down this path. We sowed these seeds of discontent, of grumbling, of lack of prayer, of lack of humility, of pride, and all of those things that Jesus said, don't do it this way. And we, we, we focus on that and what we are reaping now is exactly what we planted. We need people who understand the times with knowledge and know what America needs to do and know what Memorial Baptist Church needs to do. 
the third thing, the third quality here that he talks about is finances. Verse 9, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So that when it fails, not if it fails, when it fails, they will receive you into their eternal dwellings. See, another characteristic here of the children of this world that Jesus wanted to see in his followers. And my paraphrase is this. Use your money to advance the cause of Christ, to gain friends in the kingdom of God, so that when you die and go to heaven, you will be able to share eternity with them. Use your money, use your wealth that that will bring about eternal benefits. Because everything here is temporary. Invest in eternity You know, these three attitudes here toward money that are open to us, we can either view money as an enemy to avoid. Most of us probably don't see that as an option. Or we can allow money to become our master and worship it. Or money can be our friend to use. Something God has given us to use to promote his kingdom. See, this third attitude is what Jesus opted for in this parable. As the people of this world use their finances to advance their personal kingdoms, we as the children of God ought to use it to expand his kingdom. I mean, he summoned each one of his master's debtors. He gives us two examples, but I'm sure there were others that owed his master money. In essence, what the manager was now doing is robbing from his master by renegotiating the terms of the debt to lower the amount the debtors owed the master. As he had that job as being a manager, a steward, he had the ability to renegotiate contracts for his boss. So that's what he did in order to feather his own nest Jesus says the sons of this age. And when he's talking about that, he's talking about the people of this world. Not in the kingdom of God, those that are not a part of the kingdom of God, but part of the temporal, this temporal world, this this world that is passing away, the, the kingdom of darkness, the unrighteous, the people not in God's kingdom who belong to this passing world are more clever, are more intelligently Securing their future than the sons of light. I think this is big. Because what he's saying is he's saying. They're all about what they need to be doing. You need to get about what you need to be doing. I would say it in these five words. Take care of your future. Take care of your future. We hear that incessantly pounded on us, don't we? All kinds of ads and and things. The media, take care of your future. What's your number? We're subject to all that advertising all the time. Take care of your future. Take care of your future. I'm sick of talking about taking care of my future. Unless it's eternal. See, the reality is this. You go through life. You live and you save. And you save. And you save. Pardon me for just a moment. I don't want to take a face plant. 
You save and you save and you save. And, and, and let's say you, you retire at, at 65. You quit working and there it is, your retirement. Quite possibly you die at 66. How ridiculous is that? I say that because I know of a couple who worked really hard. He retired when he was 55. That very year, he got word from the doctor that he had a spot on his rib. And it was bone cancer. And they gave him three months to live. In three months, I did that man's funeral. He was 55. Douglas McLeod. His wife, Linda. I did her funeral a month later. 30 days later. They were set to retire. They were going to enjoy their kids and grandkids. And you know what? It never came about. When I say, yeah, you might die at 66. Who knows? I mean, you think about this. All those years of sending it forward and sending it forward. And and you get there and it, it might be a year. It might be three years. It might be five years. You hit 70. But you know what? You can't see like you used to see. You can't hear like you used to hear. You, you think you're going you're gonna to retire and you're going to buy the car of your dreams. But you know what? When you're that old, they take away your license. Or, or you have the money and you finally want to go on that long trip that you've wanted to do. And you know what? You don't want to go through the airport on a walker. Or get on the cruise ship. We've put all this time and energy into thinking about the future here, temporal, and we put none on thinking about eternity. See, Jesus was not teaching that that his disciples should be dishonest like this steward. Jesus was teaching that his disciples should use material things for future spiritual benefit. That's huge. It's a good lesson. From a bad example. I mean, are you as convicted as I am? I mean, I'm reading through this and I'm studying this and it's just coming all over me. I mean, the unrighteous do it for time. And we do it for eternity. Or we should. I mean, there's no comparison. (laughs) When you regard the temporary harvest versus the potential eternal harvest. I mean, most people think, you know, that the, the sinner, uh, the yield of the sinner ends with death, whereas the reward of the saved begins with death and goes on forever. Why would you not invest in the kingdom of God? See, our, our story illustrates the wisdom of spending money with an eternity in view. We can use our money now. To help spread the gospel. To help plant churches. To help people receive Christ. Who will then be our brothers and sisters forever. And will greet us. When we get to heaven. So I close with this. Money can't buy happiness and it can't buy eternal life. But when we, when, when it is invested in Christ's cause, it pays eternal dividends.
Let's pray together.